Would you stand with me and hear the call to worship from Psalm chapter 110, 108. Psalm 108, verses one through five. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray with me? And Father, we give thanks this morning for your word, your word that stands forever. We ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear what you have to say to us. Father, may you give us a new depth to old truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 822, 822. For many years, the church has had to make the case to the world of what it is and why it matters. However, in more recent times, like the last year or two, the church is now having to make the case to the church itself what it is and why it matters. Last week, we were in the book of Mark and we looked at Peter's good confession of Jesus as the Christ. In Matthew's account, what follows that confession is a principal passage on the church, one that we just read. In just verse 18 alone, we can see four key points concerning the church. Uh, this morning, we want to consider Jesus' words about the church, about its beginning, um, about its very foundation. So after having commended Peter, 
We saw that in verse 17. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that he made this good confession. But then Jesus notes that the only way he made that good confession is because the father revealed it to him. After that commendation, Jesus then continues to say to Peter in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first part of verse 18 has been the source of much theological disagreement for many, many years. And I don't suspect that this morning we're going to clear all of that up in a 30-minute message. Uh, This disagreement concerns who is the rock upon which Jesus says he's going to build the church. Now, there are um, three kind of common conclusions that are reached as to who the rock is. Some say it's Peter. Some say it's Peter's confession. Others say it is Jesus Christ. Now, in each case, there is an argument from the Bible of why you could come to that conclusion. Just from a plain reading of the text, we could probably conclude, basically, he's talking to Peter, so doesn't that mean that it is Peter? Of course, that is who Jesus is speaking. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That seems kind of clear, uh, maybe. Uh, However, some have concluded that, that Peter is the rock, and therefore he is the foundation of the church, And consequently, that makes him uh, the first pope. Now, um, there are several problems with that view. Um, Papacy, we know, uh, rises to the level of infallibility. You may know a little bit about that. Which is clearly not supported from the text. Um, Not even the immediate texts. Because shortly after Peter makes this confession... Shortly after, Jesus says on this rock, he says something else to Peter. In Mark chapter 8, verse 33, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That doesn't seem like infallibility to me, right? He, He missed it. Peter missed something. Peter was, in fact, fallible. Later, we know that Peter, in fact, denies Jesus at his crucifixion. We also know in Acts chapter 15 that Peter was rebuked by Paul for his treatment of Gentile Christians. Now, what's the point? We're we're beating up on Peter here. No, we're not beating up on Peter. We're, We're saying that Peter was flawed. Peter was a human. Peter was like you and like me. He had his good moments and he had his bad moments. Whether the rock is referring to Peter Uh, or not, does not correlate with him being a pope or the first pope or the beginning of the papacy. Let's make that clear. Now, others go back to the original language, which we don't see so clearly in the English, but in the original language, the word Peter is the word Petros, and the word rock is the word Petra. Those are two different words. They have similar meaning, but they're different. The word Petros means small stone, And the word rock means a rocky mountain or rocky peak or or solid rock. So we could conclude or understand that Jesus was making a distinction by saying that Peter was a small stone upon the rock or upon the solid rock. 
Now we do know that Peter was appointed by Jesus to be an apostle. We read that throughout this, the scriptures in, in a place like Ephesians chapter two, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God or the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In Galatians chapter two, Paul says that, that Peter and James and John were all pillars of the church. So in some way, Peter, by his confession and by his appointment as an apostle, was a representation of this larger group of apostles who were foundational to the beginning of the church. So to understand that, that Peter was foundational, that, that makes sense. However, I didn't read all of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 to you. Let me read the whole verse. Verse 19 says, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, comma, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Later, Peter, this man here, he writes a letter. And in his own letter, chapter two, verses four through seven, he writes this. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So to so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and he quotes Psalm chapter 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. John MacArthur writes this, the foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through his apostles and the Lord of the church is the cornerstone of that foundation. So Jesus was certainly telling Peter, that he and the apostles would play a role in the foundation of the church. That's, that's clearly uh, in view here. But ultimately, it all rests on the cornerstone. It all rests on Jesus Christ. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse and all drank that same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that, was, that followed them. The rock was Christ. So then we can rightly sing with the hymn, what the hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Having stated the church's foundation or its stability on the rock, Jesus then declared the identity of the church. Look at the rest or the next part of verse 18. And I will build my church. Uh, for the sake of clarity, and so we're all on the same page this morning, uh, I want to define what the Bible means when it uses the word church. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about the word church. Commonly, church is equated with a service. You all came to church today, right? You came to this service or you came to this building. Let's meet at the church. Right? It's equated as that. But is that what the Bible is talking about? I've even heard uh, the word church used as a verb. We're churching. 
This didn't seem very familiar to me, but I, I, I've heard of that, as in we're going to church, if, if, you did, if you've never heard of that. Uh, but instead of debating the, the, the common usages, what does the Bible mean? What does the word mean? What, what, what is actually being said here? Well, the word church in a general sense just means assembly. That's what it means. That's what the word means. That's how it's used in the Bible. It's how Jesus is using it to some degree here in a general sense. In the book of Acts, this word is used to, to refer to a congregation. It's even referred, used to refer to a riotous mob in chapter 19. But when we look at the Greek word itself, we understand this. That the word is the word ekklesia or ekklesian. And it's made up of two words. The first word is ek, E-K, which means out of. And the second part of the word, kleo, is the word to call. So we could say that the church is an assembly of called out ones. Those who have been called out by God to him, meeting together, gathering together. That is the, the group of people that God calls. That is the congregation of faith, a faith family as we like to call it around here. So when Jesus was talking about the church, he meant his followers, all of his followers. He will build his church. He will build this, this gathering, this group of people who will follow him. Now we believe in the, in the New Testament um, that the church is comprised of believers from Pentecost to the rapture. That is from when the church began to the time when God calls his believers to be with him. This could be called what, what some call the, the universal church. Sometimes we say the big C church, which includes more than just our church, obviously, right? It includes all believers from the time of Pentecost until the time of the rapture. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every nation. Uh, in his book called Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, John Hammett says that, churches, uh, that the church is primarily a local assembly, in the scriptures. He says that there are 114 times in the New Testament that this word for church is used. And at least 90 of them, it is used for local churches or a local church. He states that though there are valid usages of this word to refer to the, the universal church, it is secondary in terms of biblical prominence. So when we read the, the word church in, in, the, in the New Testament, what is primarily being talked about there is the local church. It's not the, the, the universal church primarily. Now, there are some who, who say that, well, well, because we're part of the local church, we don't need to be part of a local church. Because we're part of the universal church, excuse me, we don't need to be part of a, a local church. And to that, John Hammond says, this view would be contrary to the New Testament pattern. The biblical pattern was that what? that Christians in a particular locality gathered with other Christians in that locality and worshiped. In the, in the New Testament, that was implicit. It was natural. You wouldn't have even thought of getting saved and not gathering with other Christians. That wouldn't that would even been on the radar to be an individual uh, Christian or, 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 or do this in isolation. The local church, though, is not at odds with the universal church. So we're not pitting them against each other. It's actually how the universal church is embodied. Meaning, how do we see the local church? We see it through the local. How do we see the universal church? We see it through the local church. Right? That's how, how we know who is even part of the universal church, is who is part of the local church. Why? Because in the local church, that's where faith is affirmed. 
That, that's where we, we gather with, with a testimony of faith and we recognize one, one another's faith in Christ. So a question may come, well, still, can you be a Christian and not part of the church? Can I be a Christian and, and I, don't, I don't identify or I don't join a local church? Well, yes, absolutely. You can be a, a, a Christian and not be part of a church, but that doesn't mean that you should. Pastor Mark Dever says that you also can drive your car at night without headlights. <laughs> that won't be a good experience. There's danger. You won't be able to see. There, there's advantages to, to having lights. Similarly, there, there's an advantage to you as a Christian to be part of a, a local church. There, there are things that happen here spiritually that you do not get by yourself. Yes, you can do it, but it's not a good idea. You won't see clearly. You won't experience all that you can. And you're willfully putting yourself in a spiritually unsafe place where you don't have the people around you to encourage you, to keep you accountable. Listen, in my experience, that the people that we have seen move away from the Lord are those people who have disconnected themselves from a like-minded faith community, whether it's a young person or an older person. It is that important. Why? Because daily we are bombarded with, with false things, false narratives, things that are untrue. And how, how can we be tethered to the truth? Yes, you can read your Bible on your own, and you should. But you need, I need, one another to help us follow Jesus together. The church matters. The local church matters. And it matters to Jesus. And we can see this in this statement. He says, I will build my church. You hear the personal pronouns there? I will build my church. The identity of the church is that it is Jesus's church. He owns it. This isn't my church. This isn't, this isn't your church. This is Jesus's church. He calls the shots. He tells us what to do. That's why we believe that the, in the Bible. That's why we follow the Bible because we want to do what God wants us to do. Many are fond of saying, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I don't really care for the church. And they say that as though dismissing the church is a permissible view. That somehow that God thinks that that's okay and that we should all just accept that. That I can love Jesus and not love the church. Is the church perfect? No. Does it have its problems? Yes. Are some churches toxic and people have been hurt in churches? Yes. But, but, here's the reality. Jesus identifies with the church. The Bible actually calls it his body. His body. He is the head and the, the church is his body. It means it's an extension of himself. It's an extension of his ministry, his mission. It would be like saying to someone, I like your head, but I don't really care for your body. If we could just get rid of that body and I could just carry your head around, that would be great. Kevin DeYoung says that if decapitation is cutting off the head from the body, then the sentiment of those who say, I want Christ but not the church, is decorpulation. It is separating the body from the head. It's saying, I don't have any use for the body, I just want to carry around the head. Like, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's connected. 
If we love Jesus, we will love what he loves. It's that simple. The body of Jesus goes with the head, which is Jesus himself. Jesus himself makes this connection for us in the scriptures. So you'll remember in the book of Acts, many of you remember in the book of Acts, a guy named Paul, or then Saul. And Saul didn't care for Christians. He didn't care for the church. He wanted to try to put it out. And he's trying to persecute Christians in order to stop the gospel. That was his intention. And one day, he is on his way to persecute Christians. That's his expressed intention, to breathe threats against God's people. And he is met by a blinding light. And then he hears a voice, which we come to know is Jesus' voice. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me? He wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? He's persecuting people. What's the implication? The implication is that Jesus is so identifying with the church that by persecuting the church, he was in fact persecuting Jesus himself. That's a big deal. This is how closely Jesus identifies with his people. So we ought to be very careful how we talk about the church as though we can dismiss the church as unnecessary when it is, in fact, Jesus' own body. Jesus identified with the church. His identification with the church tells us that he cares about it. But not only is the church the body of Christ, it is also called the bride of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul talks about, talking about marriage. He's using this illustration of, of a husband and a wife and Christ in the church. And he says, as Christ laid down his life for the church, so husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives. So imagine your friend saying, well, I like you well enough, but your wife, no, let, let's, let's just uh, kind of put her out. We'll, we'll hang out, but not your wife, not your spouse. Uh, you're, I'm good with you, but I don't really care for, for her or for him, right? That wouldn't go very well for most of us, right? If, if our friend said that about our spouse, say, those are fighting words. Like, you, don't, you don't dismiss my, my spouse just like that. that is, that's not an appropriate response. That's not an approved of response. No one would accept that as appropriate. Again, if we love Jesus, we will love what he loves, And if Jesus loves the church, then we should love the church. It is his church. He will build it, which leads us to the third key point about the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We see certainty here. Jesus doesn't say um, a pastor will build the church. He doesn't say the deacons will build the church. He doesn't say a strategic planning committee will build the church. He doesn't say a good building project is going to build the church. He doesn't say that the right music or the right lights or the right promotion or the right website are going to build the church. No, he says that he will build the church. The building of the church is a spiritual endeavor brought about by divine power. Now, does Jesus use people? Yes, he uses people. Does Jesus use the teaching of the scriptures? Yes, he uses the teaching of the scripture. How about the prayers of the saints or the community of faith or the discipleship of believers or the evangelism by his people? Of course, yes, to all of them. 
Yes, Jesus uses those things, but all of those things are, are planting. All of those things are watering. And God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who builds the church. God is the one who brings the harvest. Jesus promised that he would build the church. So here's what you can know. The church will be built. It's that certain. What Jesus promises, Jesus does. As Jesus is talking about the church here, uh, we, we need to remember, he's talking about the church in a, in a future tense. Right? He's looking forward to the time when his followers would gather together. It wasn't yet. We wouldn't see it until Acts chapter 2, after the day of Pentecost, when his followers would gather together for worship, for teaching, for prayer, for fellowship, and for breaking of bread. Only then would the church be born and the church grow. But Jesus is looking forward to it. Not only will it be built, but finally we see that it will stand. Look at the rest of verse 18. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, if you're a thinking person, you might look at the church in this age and wonder, what is becoming of the church? What will the church become? Man, more and more, we are seeing a departure from Scripture in so-called churches, among so-called Christians. We're seeing the, the increase of, of um, progressive theology and secularism and worldliness accepted by professing Christians. So we might ask, what will become of the church? You may ask, what will become of the church? And I'm glad you did ask. So let me tell you what will happen to the church. It will be built and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. It's indestructible. It is absolutely indestructible. Do you know how comforting that is for a pastor? Do you know how comforting that is for you? When you're looking at the world and you're seeing what's happening, you're saying, man, what is happening here? What is this world coming to? There's no need for fear. There's need for faithfulness. There's a need for us to, to stand up for truth, yes and amen, but Jesus is gonna do his work. Jesus promised that the church will be built and it will be built. Not even the chains of hell can stop the movement of God. Now, does that mean every church will become a megachurch? Nope. Does that mean that some churches or many churches will have their lampstand removed? Yes. Does that mean that even the church in America may falter? Clearly, yes. Does that mean that some churches will shut their doors and their gospel witness will be put out? Sadly, yes. But the true church of Jesus Christ will be built. No one. No one. Not the world. Not the devil. Not China. Not death. No one can stop the building of Christ's church. He will build the church. It might look different than it did when you grew up. It might not look the same as it does today. But the church of Jesus Christ will be built. In fact, we know that where the church is growing the fastest is where persecution is the greatest. Namely, in the South Pacific. Where there is great persecution for following Jesus. Persecution and threats do not stop the building of the church. In fact, the early church father, Tertullian, said it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the church actually grows through martyrdom. 
That the very thing that these, these who are persecuting think they're doing is actually the, the exact opposite. You can't extinguish what God is bringing into existence. The gospel shines brightest in the darkest places. We need to be aware that, that our day may come. It very well may come. We've, we've in, in, enjoyed great freedom of religion, great freedom of expression, great freedom to meet here without any fear of anything else. But our day may very well come when there's a price tag for you to walk through that door. There's a price tag for you to join a church. There's a price tag for you to identify with Jesus in that way. And what we can know, though, is this. Jesus will build his church. He'll build it. The people who God is calling will come to him. The church is the, the called out ones. They're going to be called to him. And those who are his will come to him. And we know this because the, the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, because of that, death has no power. It has no power. It has no power over you. It has no power over the church. In fact, the church is invincible. Uh, this passage is the first time the church is mentioned in the New Testament. So uh, that, that probably ought to give us some insight into why it's important. But more than it being the first utterance of the church, who is speaking? Who is speaking? It is Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the head of the church. That's who is speaking. This makes all the difference. So what he says actually matters. Meaning if, if the church is his, if he identifies with it, if it's his plan, then we ought to get on board with his plan. You might look around and say, well, man, the church, I'm part of it. It's, it's not really the best thing going. Right, that's not the point. <laughs> the point isn't find the coolest church. The point is, are you partnering with God in his mission for this age? Why would we ever get on board with the local church? Not because it's the greatest thing going, but because it's God's divine plan. It's what he has called us into. And so I ask you, what is your relationship with the church of Jesus Christ? And you might say, well, hey, pastor, I'm sitting here this morning, aren't I? Come on, man. Like, aren't you preaching to the choir? Yes, thank you. I'm glad you're here this morning. We are glad you're here. But more than attendance, how are you embracing the community of God's people? How are you partnering with the local church for the mission of God? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page uh, 1007. 1007. Hebrews chapter 10, let's begin in verse 23. The writer of Hebrews says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Sounds like a good thing. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as all the more and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we stir one another up together if we're not together? 
how, how do you stir one another if, if we're not together? We can affirm all day that we, we love what Jesus loves, but if we don't actually participate in what Jesus is doing, then that doesn't seem like we're loving what Jesus loved. How are you stirring one another up for love and good works? One of the ways we do that is by not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you're with us this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to say to you, you're not part of the church. You're actually not part of the body of Christ. You're not the bride of Christ. When Jesus says, I'll build my church, it's not necessarily including you, but, but it could. It could include you. If the church is the called out people of God, those people who've responded to the message of God, the message of Jesus, which we saw in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And for those who do, they become part of the body of Christ. They become a follower of Jesus, a Christian, and are now considered the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. You too can be part of this church. You too can identify with Jesus in this way. The church of Jesus, rightly ordered and designed by God, is a beautiful testimony to the work of God among broken people in a broken world. So may our lives bear witness to the goodness of his plan through our obedience and our involvement in his means of gospel advancement in the world. And what is his means of gospel advancement in the world? the church of Jesus Christ. May God be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to understand today the beauty of the church. Maybe we've had bad experiences with the church. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've grown up thinking it's irrelevant or unnecessary. Father, even here from Jesus' words, may we be corrected or reminded that it is in fact his church. It's his plan. It's his design for this age. It's not an optional. It's not optional. This is what we're called to. So Father, help us to partner up. Help us to join in. Help us to understand what it means to be part of a local church. Certainly attendance is crucial. Father, we know that that's not the only thing that means. Help us to know how to embrace being part of a family, a family of faith, that Jesus Christ would receive the glory in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.